I'm, am I getting the silent treatment? Are you guys mad at me? Okay. Maybe. I'm not the birthday boy. That is true. That's true. Isaac, do you want to come up here and get a round of applause? This is a vending machine. Pinch for each year, whatever. Okay. Now that I just got fired. Um, <laughs> Sid Druin, well, the, the now ex-campus minister, no, uh, the minister for RUAP, Reform University Fellowship at New Mexico State University. RUAP is a campus Christian ministry that exists to serve NMSU in Jesus' name. RUAP exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the Mexican-American and the white Anglo-Saxon, and everyone in between. For the student and government hopeful who promises to lobby in faraway Santa Fe to provide more chocolate milk dispensers and Captain Crunch in house locally. And already exists for the student who's not quite sure she's even enrolled officially and is just kind of taking classes with the hope that maybe they'll get graded. <laughs> So, REF exists for those of you who wonder if Jesus is an empty deceit, and for those of you who are convinced that Jesus is not just another human tradition. In other words, whoever you are, wherever you are, thanks for coming. Uh, welcome. We hope to get to know you, RUF, collectively, not just me, extended. And we hope that you get to know RUF. Part of that wonderful project is that we're going to talk a little bit about Maybe the people who've been here before, introduce yourself to somebody new. Uh, afterwards, uh, maybe introduce, reintroduce yourself to someone whose name you forgot. Um, be that bold person. And if you're new, welcome. This is your chance to just relax. Uh, maybe get to know a few folks. Uh, maybe get to make a new friend or two. Okay, is the sign-up still somewhere around out there? Okay, I'm going to pass it around again. I know. Can you take off the big, the, the, okay, cool. So this is just like a sign up for your email, your name. Um, we're not tracking you. Um, I know you want us to like cater your internet habits to RUF, but we're not going to do that for you. We're just trying to, if you want more information about RUF, we'll send you an email. Another way to do that is to look at the Facebook group, NMSU RUF. Uh, that's a great way to get more connected. Can we just talk about something really amazing? Summer conference? Uh, I've been waiting so long. Um, I mean, I've been almost doing the PP dance. I've been so excited. Um, so, fired again. <laughs> I just might as well. I have, I have everything to lose at this point, right? Um, so, no, I mean, registration opens Thursday, March 1st. And uh, let me just tell you. Just grab a postcard outside if you haven't already and get on Summer Conference. It is an awesome time. Um, we'll leave May 12th and we'll get back May 20th. The whole thing will cost $315. Um, and if that is a problem for you where you are economically, come talk to me. We're not going to let money be the issue that keeps you from going to Summer Conference. People give money to RUF to help people like you. Okay, So... But let me just paint a picture for you about Summer Conference. Just maybe just to get the idea of me doing the PP dance out of your head. Um, this is an epic road trip across the country. I'm saying epic. Amazing seminars on pretty much any topic that you can imagine. 
And there's wonderful, a wonderful speaker talking about something that really very few of us actually understand, which is the future hope of glory. Okay? And he's an amazing speaker, Les Newsom. Uh, and then there's also plenty of fun in the sun and on the beach. Volleyball, sailing, pool game. If you don't know what that is, that might be the reason you should come. And, oh man, I'm just, you know, there's just so many things to talk about. I've been twice now, this will be my third time. Uh, and my family's coming. Uh, the little ones in tear are all going to make the epic journey with us. Uh, so, but really, like, who's been to summer conference here? Raise your hand. Talk to one of those people if you have not been. And let them, and I'm giving you permission to say whatever you want, okay? I have a feeling it's going to be good, so I don't really need to worry about that. Uh, again, all expenses paid, 10 days, um, and we're excited about it. We have scholarships if you need them. Start signing out March 1st. Again, you guys understand the rest of the country, like, plans out their summers already. We're in New Mexico. Like, the East Coast is, like, all about, they planned out, like, next summer. Like 2013. Yes. So, exactly. He's from Virginia. So, I mean, he knows. So, really, we got to get on this so we can get some slots in there. So, anyway. Okay, finally, REF cares about NMSU, the students, the campus. I'm going to give you three ways that we care about NMSU. Uh, look, there's, we have two special guests. Daniel, John, you guys want to stand up for a second? Um, I'm turning their candidacy into how great REF is, but really, um, <laughs> these guys are applying for student president at Vance MSU. Um, come talk to them afterwards. Check out their Facebook pages. Uh, it is Daniel Sontag and Jonathan Goki. And you can check out what they're about. Ask them about whether they're going to give you Captain Crunch and Taos. Um, these are very important issues, but there's obviously more important issues. I should, like whether or not we're going to change the GPA, and all those sort of things are really kind of pressing, okay? So come talk to them, say hello, ask them why, they, why you should vote for them, and certainly go out and vote next week, okay? You guys can be seated. Thanks for, thanks for coming. Um, another way that we show our concern for NMSU is the big event. We're caring about the community, we're caring about NMSU, we're participating in the big event. It's a great way to have some fun and care for the world around us and alongside NMSU. And finally, this is maybe the biggest way that we care about NMSU, um, we're hosting a kickball game for anyone and everyone at NMSU to come and play kickball. Uh, Friday at 2 p.m. at the intramural fields behind the rugby field, I think. Above. Um, what? Above, thank you. I don't know exactly where that is. So I'm going to have it all just follow. Um, look, you know, you might think kickball's not as serious as student government or community service, but you say that until someone rolls a bouncy pitch. <laughs> and, uh, strike out. That is pretty serious. <laughs> no bounces. Uh, okay, so I'm not going to sit here and get fired some more. Let's talk about the Bible. Um, this semester we're going to be talking about the book of Colossians and the Bible. We're talking about the letter to the Colossians that Paul wrote. Um, and my best attempt at a title for our study is this. Um, what if enough was actually enough? What if enough was actually enough? How Jesus is all we ever really needed and wanted anyway. So our pastor tonight is again going to address that topic, so I don't feel like I've spent a lot of time on what the title means. But um, really my title is my best attempt to get at what Paul is trying to say in this letter. 
And I think basically from the inside of Christianity and from the outside of Christianity, sometimes Christianity, sometimes Jesus can feel incomplete. Okay? And this letter is addressing that feeling, and, he's, and Paul's telling us a helpful mystery, a not-so-secret secret. And it's this. In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And if you believe this, you have been filled in him, that's Jesus, who is the head of all rule and all authority. That's just quoting verses 9 through 10, basically, of chapter 2, which is going to be our passage tonight. But before I get there, um, I want to remind you where we've been, and I'm going to kind of let you, I'm going to tell you where we're going to go. So basically, Paul, a follower of Jesus, has wrote to the Colossians. Colossae, by the way, is in modern Turkey, uh, sort of southwest, for those of you who are counting. And Paul is writing under God's inspiration to remind the Colossians and to remind us about what the gospel is all about. And the, the gospel, the central message of Christianity, is about who Jesus is, who he really is, and what he's really done. And so this letter started out in chapter 1 with some introductions. Paul introduces himself, Paul introduces his ministry, and then Paul introduces the good news of the gospel. Okay? So who Jesus is, I don't know if you remember this, the image of the invisible God, filled with God's divine fullness. And then what Jesus has done, by him all things were created. Through him all things were reconciled to God. Even us, if we continue in the faith. That's a little summary of chapter 1. And we're now starting in earnest chapter 2, verse 6, is where we're starting. And we're reaching into the heart of what Paul's trying to say. Okay, This is the heart of Paul's letter. And it's one of, if not the most beautiful, brilliant, and clarifying passages in all Scripture. That's a huge claim. One of the most brilliant, beautiful, and clarifying passages in all the world. Starting in verse 6. That's what I'm saying. Stick into that comment. Okay? I, I won't say that every time I study a book of the Bible, I promise you. Okay, So it's not, hopefully it has some power. And really, much of the passage's power comes from this idea that it offends us. It absolutely offends us, no matter where we are with Christianity. And I'm going to assure you this, it offends us, it wounds us, not to kill us, but to heal us. And that's what makes it so powerful and beautiful. And I think what we think about Christianity might just be completely or partly different than what Christianity actually is. And that's what this passage is telling us. It's asking us, do we know what we're talking about? Do we know what this is all about? whether we like Christianity a lot, or whether we're very, very skeptical about Christianity. So let's prepare to hear this passage. I'm really going to tackle very few verses here. Um, there's just so much good stuff here. So the next couple weeks we'll really tackle what's so beautiful and brilliant and compelling about it. But if you have a Bible, turn to chapter 2 uh, of Colossians, and we're looking at verses 6 through 10. If you don't, there's a bulletin. Look on the inside right-hand page. So, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Can you stand up for the reading of Scripture? And as you're standing up, I'll tell you where the book of Colossians is located. It's in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, between Philippians and 1 Thessalonians. So you go past Romans, and if you've hit Hebrews, you've gone too far. And we're reading out the English Standard Version Translation. So, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, 
just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according and sorry, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Friends, these are the words of God. They're more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they are sweeter than honey, even honey in the honeycomb. Would you pray? Father, um, there's a lot going on in our hearts and our minds right now, and I pray that you calm that. Um, I pray that we really let Scripture speak, and I pray that you'd help me to get out of the way there. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. I pray that um, wherever we are, that you meet us with this word for us today. I pray that um, you would make this a time that's worthwhile. Uh, that we wouldn't be just going through the motions here, uh, but that we would see you high and lifted up, beautiful and believable. We would see, Jesus, that you are the whole fullness of deity, bodily resurrected. And I pray that that would be clear to us this evening, that we would see that and see why it's so important for our lives. I pray that you would not leave us the same. That, and if you wound us, I pray that you would heal us with that wound. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Be seated. <clears throat> so, um, I have a confession. I'm going to tell. I'm going to do a movie illustration. I'm not seeing a movie, so we're just going to go from there. Okay. Um, so, there's this Woody Allen movie called Hannah and Her Sisters, and I just am really obsessed with one quote in it. Um, it's a 1986 Woody Allen movie. Uh, it contains this one line I just cannot get over. I can't get over it. It's, the, it's somehow like the bo- both the most disturbing and the most attractive line I've ever heard. Okay? Lots of overstatement today. Um, one of Woody Allen's characters, Frederick, utters this famous line. Here's the line. If Jesus came back and saw what's going on in his name, he'd never stop throwing up. If Jesus came back and saw what's going on in his name, he would never stop throwing up. Strong. Way over the top. Way, way, way over the top, perhaps. Um, he's God, so I guess he can keep throwing up. But um, there's something um, there's something that I think in a statement by Woody Allen through the character of Frederick that uh, Paul would agree with fundamentally. There's something in what Frederick's saying that seems to get at the passion behind the letter of the Colossians. And especially the short introductory passage, verses 6 through 10. Now the context, the scene that, that Woody Allen has in this movie, uh, for the image of Jesus puking, this scene is actually Frederick yelling about television, and particularly televangelists. Third grade con men telling the poor suckers that watch them that they speak with Jesus and please send in money. Money, money, money. Those are Frederick's words, not mine. Okay, uh, the character of the Woody Allen film, and the, and maybe there's and there's definitely something there. And maybe this quote is about the false teachers that have come to Colossae, uh, to the, the city that Paul's writing to. And maybe these are the people that Paul's writing against, and maybe these are the people that are taking captive those well-meaning folks by philosophy and empty deceit. And maybe the best modern comparison for um, 
the televangelist, or sorry, the best modern comparison for the con man of Colossae is the televangelist, who have amazing but maybe appropriate names like Prospero Dollar. Real name. Okay. But what haunts me about this image of Jesus throwing up is not that all of, not that basically Jesus is really angry and really disgusted. Okay. I don't think that Jesus is really jostling up about that. And maybe this is a stretch, but I think that Jesus is throwing up out of sadness. Out of despair. Not for himself, but for us. Jesus' throwing up isn't just aimed at the common Christianity, the cult leaders. This sadness is aimed at folks like me, like you, who struggle with gratitude. I said this before, I'll say it again. I stink at abounding in thanksgiving. And that's a command in verse 7. <laughs> but in studying this passage and thinking and praying over what verses 6 through 10 tell me, I think I'm starting to grasp the reason why I stink at thankfulness. My thankfulness reflects my feeling of captivity. My thanklessness reflects my feeling of captivity. I'm all too often taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Look, I'm not talking about world religions like Buddhism. I'm not talking about like secular, modern philosophies like rationalism or maybe an ideology like communism. No, those would be super easy to spot. Okay? We'd all know whether or not we were being taken captive by that. What I'm talking about is much more subtle. I get trapped doing the opposite of what verses 6 through 7 say. I think I have to do something else. I have to do something more to stay Christian to grow in my faith. I get caught up adding something to Jesus, adding something to needing him and believing in him, and so walking in him by faith, by faithful words and faithful actions and faithful feelings and faithful thoughts. And really this passage is telling me and telling you, because my guess is this is your problem as well, is that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. I love the way that another REF minister put it at Penn State. The Christian kingdom is not that Jesus forgives your sins, gets you a get-out-of-jail-free card, and now you have to try real hard to live like a Christian. Paul urges us to remember how we first became a Christian. It was by grace. Grace. That gift of relationship with God that we didn't and couldn't ever earn. Basically, verses 6 through 10 are telling us how to be thankful by pointing to us to a life in Jesus. A life that gives thanksgiving because it's a life of joy, a life of rest. And joy and rest make us thankful. Here's the point of verses 6 through 10. Turn to Jesus, the whole fullness of deity, for fulfillment. And turn away from every other thing, every other system, and every other person. I'll say it again. Turn to Jesus, the whole fullness of deity, for fulfillment. For fulfillment. I can't say that very well. Fulfillment. And turn away from every other thing, every other system, every other person. For empty deceit. Compared to Jesus. Okay. Now, that's huge. Those are some bold claims. But God, from the beginning, is making a great argument about how to live the Christian life well. And so this passage, starting in <coughs> verse 6, is going to reflect a persuasive speech in its outline. Verses 6 through 7, we see Paul positively telling us how to grow as people 
and in thankfulness. And his advice is very surprising in verses 6 through 7. He says, return to the beginning. Don't keep going forward. Go backwards. Return to your first love, Jesus. In verse 8, we see Paul negatively telling us how to grow and, and as people and in thankfulness. And it's a warning that's very offensive. He says, avoid man-made rules. Avoid superstition. And finally, in verses 9 through 10, Paul tells us why returning to Jesus is the only way to grow as people and in thankfulness. And his logic is solid. Return to Jesus because he alone has the whole fullness of deity. And you are made full that is fulfilled in Jesus alone. Okay, that's complicated. Let me make it very simple. Okay? Verses 6 through 7 tell us how to grow in Jesus. Verse 8 tells us to grow in nothing else but Jesus. Verses 9 through 10 tell us Jesus grows us because he's full of God. First, let's look at how we grow as people in thankfulness let's, by returning to Jesus alone. All right, verse 6 is where I am. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That's pretty clear about how we grow, isn't it? What's being said here? How are we supposed to walk in the Christian life? How are we supposed to walk, to think, to feel, to do? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to think? What are we supposed to feel? We're supposed to do all of the things and think all of the things and feel all of the things just like we received Jesus. What did that look like? Some of us maybe don't remember. Some of us maybe have never received Jesus. I'll tell you what it looked like for me and for the rest of us who are Christian. It looked like believing in Jesus. Faith. Okay? Trusting that Jesus is full of rescue and full of leadership and those and rescue and leadership that we don't have. And it looks like turning from everything and everyone else that we look to for rescue and leadership. That's called repentance. So faith and repentance are how we receive Jesus in his fullness. Does that make sense? Are we following? Okay. So, and this is the surprising part. We walk in Jesus for the rest of our lives. By what? Faith and repentance. Cling to what is good and forsaking what's bad. Faith and repentance. And this is what verse 6 and the the rest of Colossians and the rest of the Bible is all about. It's so easy. The Christian life is so easy. But then again, it's so hard. In Paul chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, a passage that we looked at earlier in the semester, lays out just what Jesus gave us when we received him, when we believed in him, when we, that he lived and died for us on a cross. What do we get from that if we believe that? And this is a beautiful list of things. I'm just going to go over it very quickly and explain why it's significant. We're qualified. Okay? We're qualified. We're approved forevermore to share in God's heaven. Come, coming now to earth to make a new heavens and new earth. We're delivered. We're delivered from self-absorption that feeling, that concept, that way of being doesn't own us anymore. It doesn't have to be the way we are. Everything doesn't have to circle around our, our son. We're transferred to the family of God as his daughters and his sons. We're the apples of his eye. We're the center of his affections. 
We're redeemed, we're ransomed at infinite cost by Jesus' blood to be children of God and not slaves of our own contempt and other people's contempt for us. And finally, we're forgiven, we're released from the knots that bind all of our private shames to us all the time. That is huge promises, okay? Huge promises. And if you're halfway honest, that's a big deal. And so, verse 6 reminds me to believe that Jesus' fullness includes once and all, once for all, qualification, deliverance, transfer, redemption, and forgiveness. And here's the deal. To the extent that I believe that, which is hard, (laughs) because I believe these truths about who I am in Jesus now, and don't believe the lies about who I'm not today, I don't believe that I'm a prisoner of other people's approval today, for instance. To the extent that I believe I've got nothing to lose in Jesus, to the extent that I'm abounding in thanksgiving, those things are related to the extent that you understand who you are in Jesus Christ is to the extent in which you're thankful. Do you get that? We're grateful, joyful, and full of rest to the extent that we get what this is all about. To the extent that we wrestle with qualification, deliverance, transferal, Redemption and forgiveness. What do those things mean in our day-to-day lives? I'm going to give you the best I can do to be very concrete and very real, okay? What does this look like in our actual day-to-day lives? It looks like walking in these truths as if they were actual historical truths. That's what faith is. That's what repentance is. It looks like thinking about the cross like it really happened. It has really given you and me a full-out acceptance. No matter what my mom or my best friend or the people in my class think about me, it doesn't matter anymore. It looks like feeling my way through the cross, speaking to my doubts, speaking to my disbelief about the power of Jesus' death. He's got the power to change my moods. He's got the power to change my orientation from me to him. And it looks like acting as if the cross has changed everything. As if I no longer have to earn the good life by doing everything that everyone else wants me to do. Do you get that? Do you understand how freeing that is? I'm free to mess up. I'm free to fail. I'm free to be free. And all this yields a life of thankfulness which allows us to take other people's criticism like a paper cut instead of a bullet wound. Do you get what that means? <laughs> Do you see how freeing that is to sit there and say, hey, you suck at preaching. Okay. That's, that's fine. And not to sit there and die. Okay? That's a big difference. And I hope eventually to be able to think of this paper cut. Okay. Um, look, this is why... A former, this is why a former professor of mine named Knox Chamblin, and I really think you have to imagine a deep southern, southeastern accent that's kind of gravelly and slow. You have to kind of imagine that. He's fond of this saying, the Lord never allows us to leave the cross or get beyond the cross, but only ever takes us more deeply into the cross. Okay, I'll say it again. The Lord never allows us to leave the cross or get beyond the cross, but only ever takes us more deeply into the cross. 
That's what all that meant. And verse 7 gives us another picture of what that means. It's a tree rooted in the living water of Jesus and growing healthy and abundant leaves and fruit. And let me just give you some sense of what the fruit's like. Passionate missions, sacrificial community, thoughtful worldview. Living in Christ is like building, uh, is like a building built brick by brick. Each brick resting on Jesus Christ. Christ is the foundation, and he's the mortar that holds together our deeds and our thoughts and our words. Do you get the imagery that's going on here? Let me give you a more modern metaphor, a more modern analogy from a pastor named Tulich um, It's very related, but it's a little bit more modern. He says, progress in the Christian life looks like going back to the already secured reality of your justification, your deliverance, your redemption, and hitting the refresh button a thousand times a day. Think about that as a, in the digital age, okay? Hitting the refresh button of who we are in Jesus Christ a thousand times a day. That's what this verse is talking about. That's what these verses are talking about. But let me give you a personal example, and only personal because I thought it up. It doesn't really happen to me. But to help you understand, you'll see it's a really it's kind of an analogy. But to help you understand what normally happens to us in the Christian life, how this like this truth seems so obvious, but it's so hard. Why is that? Let me give you an analogy, an image that helps, okay? Has anyone water skied? Anybody? Okay. Okay. I know we don't have a lot of water here, but we do have LPP. So um, I think in some ways it's like every one of us is born in, in life vests, bobbing in the water with these oversized skis on our feet. I mean, I guess basically I'm just trying to say life's awkward and full of frustration. Okay? Doesn't that feel awkward? I mean, giant yellow skis on your feet, bobbing in water. Anyway, okay. Um, believing in Jesus is letting go of everything else. Letting go of the life vest, the dock, the buoy, the water, whatever it is we're holding on to, okay? And then believing in Jesus is also grabbing hold of the line that is Jesus dragging behind the motorboat that is God. Okay? We follow my analogy? At first, this is what water skiing looks like. At first, life behind the boat is scary. I mean, if you ever try to get up water skiing, it's like a little bit scary. Okay? You feel like I'm about to go head over heels and eat water. Okay? And maybe you eat water hard a few times. Okay? Maybe you lose some teeth. But eventually, eventually you're able to stand, right? You're able to stand. You feel this like incredible thankfulness, exhileration, thrill. Because you're skiing behind the wake, on the wake behind the boat. And you think, this is life. This is living. But for a while. Right? But then there comes this idea, whether it's from another skier or from inside of us, that maybe I should let go of the rope and water ski on my own. That's the way the real pros do it, right? They just kind of ski without the boat. Okay, we don't know what we're talking about, obviously. So, <laughs> the pros continue to walk the road. Okay, like Paul. So, there's a form of Christianity basically out there that looks like water skiing without a rope. Looks like water skiing without being pulled by a boat. Do we get that? It's usually marketed as a spiritual supplement. The next, next greatest Christian thing. But it's really just a Jesus list. Therefore, helpless and hopeless trap. 
It looks like the awkward, frantic, furious steps that we have to take to keep afloat, to keep our balance, to keep from falling into the water again without being pulled by Jesus. That's what that looks like. Christianity without returning to Jesus, without returning to and grabbing on to his pulling power, looks like us trying to walk on water with giant skis for feet. Do you get that? It doesn't work. At least for long. And I think this kind of Christianity in the name of Jesus, but clearly designed without Jesus in mind, I think this is what makes us thankless and feel trapped. And this is what makes Jesus, if he were to come back again, to never stop throwing up. Let me return to the image of water skiing without a boat for a minute. I think it helps me explain what verse 8 is talking about, or at least maybe how verse 8 feels. Okay? Perhaps the awkward image is hard for you, is, is hard to connect with our real lives, but basically walking on water, trying real, real hard to walk on water with skis for feet without being pulled behind a boat, is a lot what verse 8 calls captivity by philosophy and empty That's what it feels like, at least. I know, from personal experience. But perhaps that awkward image is hard to connect to their real lives. And so here's what this looks like in our everyday lives for you and me. It looks like lists of rules and checklists. It looks like lists of rules and checklists. Okay, can we have an honest moment here? Um, There's not anyone in this room who has not at one time or another, mentally or physically, put a checklist for a, a better you list of rules down. Maybe it's on your mirror, maybe it's on a post-it note, maybe it's just New Year's time, you feel like you have to. Um, But you have this sort of mental list about how to be a better you and a better me. I have one for myself, I'm sure. And this really happens when we feel like we're not doing something right. When the spiritual thrill is gone, and we feel like we're not growing as human beings, this is when we double up, this is when we redouble our efforts, and we make a checklist with boxes and line items that say things like, say please and thank you every time you receive something. Or, and then that's maybe one of the things, or do community service at least once a month. Do my roommate's dishes once a week. Read my Bible in a year. Pray for at least five minutes a day. And on and on and on and on. Look, a lot of that stuff on that list is great. It's awesome to do community service. I mean, I hope we do more of it. That's what we're doing in the big event. I don't Hopefully it's not just a list. But there are some problems with writing and then living by a checklist. Okay? And that's what Paul's talking about. The checklist is the empty deceit. The checklist is the philosophy, and it makes us captive. And the reason it makes us captive is because we're living by it instead of by Jesus. First and foremost, the problem of the checklist is that it's filled with man-made rules and not Scripture. Okay? Why? Why do we do this? Why do we feel like we have to put clean my roommate's dishes once a week instead of loving your neighbor as yourself? Why is that? Because the Bible doesn't feel specific enough. And the Bible asks us to do things that we can never check off ever. Do you realize that? Love your neighbor as yourself. When are you going to check that off? When do you know you're done? Love your neighbor as yourself feels vague and unmanageable. And that's why our moral spring cleaning lists 
include doable, nice things like doing your roommate's dishes once a week. Okay? Once a week is doable, not too hard, and it's measurable. I either did the dishes or I did it, right? So I've got it down. But what if loving your roommate looks like confronting him about doing the dishes at all and not just doing the dishes for him? What if love actually sometimes looks like showing someone her selfishness instead of rejoicing in my selflessness? Do you get that? There's a problem with rules because they don't always apply. And that's why the Bible's vague and hard to accomplish. And so these, man, these kind of man-made rules, specific and doable, is what Paul's calling philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, verse 8. Certainly it's okay to apply the Bible to concrete activities like doing the dishes, but Paul's bigger point is this. We shouldn't hold doing the dishes and application of the Bible on the same level as the commands of the Bible. Okay? We shouldn't have to live by whether we do the dishes or not. Okay, that shouldn't be what makes us a good human being or not a good human being. We hold on, we love to hold our applications like we hold Jesus' commands. And this leads to a rootless and foundationless faith. That's the point of these, of these verses. And this holding on to rules at the same level as Jesus' teaching causes, causes the second problem. The source of our thanklessness, what I'm calling superstition. Okay? Uh, really, superstition is my best attempt to get at verse 8 and what it says there. Okay? When he says philosophy and empty deceit according to the elemental spirits of the world, that word in the Greek is uh, stoikia. Stoikia is this idea of elemental spirits. And the, these elemental spirits are giving the checklist, whether you're a Christian or not, a spiritual power of superstition. Like if you don't do it, things will go bad. For you, for life, it's who you are. So when we fail a checklist, we feel spiritually life-deadened, life-condemned. We don't get our monthly community service in. We feel hopelessly irresponsible, and we feel judged by everybody. And when we succeed in our checklist, we feel the spiritually life-pride. Okay? When we get our monthly community service done, we feel infinitely responsible. We feel like judging everyone else because we're good and they didn't do their community service. In either case, we feel absolutely thankless. And that's the problem, right? When we fail, there's nothing worth feeling thankful for. And when we succeed, everything's our own doing. And so there's no one else but ourselves to thank. But superstitious rulemaking and rule keeping that we all play points to a hope, a promise of verses 9 and 10. Okay? Verse 9 tells us, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This means that Jesus is not God in a moral to-do list. Jesus is not God in a moral to-do list. This means that Jesus is not God as the superstitious powers behind our ability to check off the moral to-do list. That is, in Jesus is the fullness of bodily, the fullness, the whole fullness of God, of deity, dwells bodily in a real, historically attested human being named Jesus of Nazareth. Do you get this? 
He lived a real, historically attested life, one where Jesus checked every single box next to every single command of Scripture for people who believe, for us. Jesus died a real, historically attested death, one in where Jesus sacrificed himself for those who believe in him, whether or not for those who make lists that they never cross out, and for those who despair over their irresponsibility. Jesus died for them. And Jesus died for those who make lists that always get crossed out, and for their pride over their responsibility. Jesus died for them too. And verse 10 seals the deal in my mind. And you have been filled with Jesus. You've been filled with Jesus. What does this even mean? That that historical person who God shows to in the fullness of his deity to dwell, still dwells, by the way, it's present tense. What does it mean that all of a sudden we've been filled in that person? Well, here's a little teaser. We're going to talk more about that in the next few weeks. Ah, it's okay, you're... But let me leave you with one final image from a guy named Kent Hughes. Okay? So he's walking along the beach, the Pacific Ocean, and he comes across this thought. And I'm going to fill it in, because that's what I do with metaphors. I just take them and put them to, big, to breaking point. Um, if the fullness of God dwelling bodily is like the waters covering the Pacific Ocean. Can we get that in our heads? Okay, so Jesus is the ocean, and the waters are the, are the fullness of God. We are like a mason jar dipped into that vast, surging ocean and filled to the brim and overflowing with gushing thankfulness. I suppose, in many ways, Christianity, according to this image, is a constant pouring out of God's fullness, His love, His mercy, His holiness, His justice gentle strength. It's a pouring out of all of these from deep inside of us and from deep inside of Jesus onto all of our relationships. Only to come back to that ocean of love, of mercy, of holiness, of gentle strength to fill our tiny, jar-like hearts to the brim once again so that we can pour out all of those things on other people. That's what the Christian life is. That's what we're being called to. That's what where thankfulness lies. Being a mason jar filled to the brim in the vast ocean of God's love. Pray with me. Father, um, uh, it's hard um, some of that stuff and stay a little bit and I pray that you would help us to, to see that Jesus is calling us to him that you Jesus are calling us to you and I pray wherever we are that you would help us to take a moment and to see if we want to accept that invitation to call to come to him uh, to come to you Jesus and I pray that um, we would all accept it because we all need to accept that invitation to come to you to return to the source to grab the line to ski I pray, Father, that you would be with our hearts wherever we are. I pray that you would um, 
Help us to return them to the source of life and to drink and to fill our cup. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.